Lord Jesus, we thank you that you uh, drank the world's sin, that you covered and atoned our sin, and that you hold us and you hold these little ones. Uh, Lord, you told us to come into your presence with thanksgiving and with gratitude to focus on you and who you are and what you have done. Lord, we recognize that our hearts are often given to focusing on us and on our world and we get discouraged and we get depressed and God we pray that you would through your word uh, lift our hearts would be would clear away the webs that keep us from seeing who you are and your grace and your love and your truth for us and Lord we pray that you would do that speak uh, through these teachers for these young ones and for us older ones in this place as well we commit this to you in Jesus name amen We are in the uh, Gospel According to Chronicles, uh, this last book in our Hebrew Bible that was written to give the people of Israel a hope for their future in a politically dark time. <laughs> uh, Chronicles is, uh, is about God affirming and reaffirming and reestablishing his people as his special treasure, as a special people given to worship him. It is a book about God's desire for them to be a people that give their best to God through worship. And so Chronicles is about really God calling his people to great worship. Now last week, Pastor Stan uh, gave us a great message on uh, what I consider the call to worship part one. <laughs> First Chronicles 13, where he says, high-intensity worship for a high and holy God. And it revolved around David's very first attempt to bring the Ark of God's covenant into Jerusalem. And we learn there the painful presumption of David and Uzzah as Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the cart that was carrying the Ark of God, presuming that he was more holy than the ground. And of course, we know that God uh, took his life. Uh, in, this, in that passage, David asked a very important question. How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? Or how can I ever get close to God? Or how can I glorify and enjoy God? Or how can I learn the freedom of worshiping a holy God? David learned a lot about God from that experience. He, along with the leadership in the nation of Israel, were growing in their understanding of the calling to worship God in spirit and truth and the, the call to great worship. And we can learn a lot too. So as we continue, uh, we will see David's next attempt uh, as we learn about our calling to great worship from 1 Chronicles chapter 15, starting with verse 25. And so David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David, 
was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers, and Chaniah, the leader of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting, the sound of the horn, trumpet, cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David dancing and rejoicing, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. This is the word of the Lord. What makes for great worship? Well, some might say, I'm not sure, but I know what not great worship is. Uh, this past week, I was invited to join a small group of pastors around the country to begin a discussion on the nature of building Christian community because of the concern around the vitality of Christianity in America. Uh, we were housed on the campus of St. John's University outside Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, we were invited to attend one of the chapel services that they held every day at St. John's Abbey. And so I decided to check it out. The church has a rather imposing structure, as you can see from the outside. Yes, this is a church building with a towering bell tower uh, structured in the front of a three-story wall, stained glass. It is a modern architectural design of cast-in-place concrete by famous Hungarian-born architect and furniture designer Marcel Brewer. It is rather impressive, is it not? And the inside is likewise impressive. Concrete, a huge monolithic cast and poured concrete structure. And I was sitting in one of the individual wooden cubicles, a three-sided high-back structured pew that surrounded the altar, and in front of me were shelves that held about 10 different worship manuals and hymn books for each person to use to guide us in the worship service. A very kind lady who was sitting next to me sensed I was a rather lost soul and helped me find the right places in the three manuals that were used in that particular service. And these manuals contain scripted, well-thought-out liturgy with scriptures and responsive readings and songs and hymns with notes. And before me, uh, around the concrete altar, was a fully-robed priest officiate and some robed assistants who led the service. And as I sat there, I distinctively felt God as being very transcendent that he was a high and holy God who was very exacting and ordering in his being. I know that many worshipers come into such services through the readings of the scriptures and songs and find strength and comfort in the God of the scriptures who tell us that he is a rock and a fortress. 
But as I sat there in the precision and order and the formalities of it all, a memory flooded my mind. It was Jenny Finch, a middle school student at the time who grew up here in Penn Lucy on 41st Street, and it was Thursday night, and it was choir rehearsal, and the choir was singing a hand-clapping, body-swaying, uh, foot-stomping, get-down gospel song, and Jenny was in the back there, and she was just dancing, and frolicking, and whirling, and free of the spirit, full of joy and gladness, and it was one of my favorite memories of spontaneous worship in this place. And then I thought, what if right now I climbed out of this containing high-back wooden cubicle and started to dance and whirling around the sanctuary right then and now? What if I did that? What would that be like? Some of you might feel that way right now. Well, many of you are probably grateful that I resisted that notion and urge. Those worshipers were probably too. But some of you may have wished I would have just let loose and soared in that place. And it raises the question about what good and proper worship is. Well, here in Chronicles, David reveals for us not only the character of good and proper worship, but the character of great worship. Here we see that great worship is holy worship, is wholehearted worship, and it's benediction worship. God calls his people, he calls us to great worship, and he calls us to holy worship. And so we see in verse 25 how the David and the elders of Israel and the commanders, they went out to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Odeb Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. The uh, commentator Joyce Baldwin comments about David's error in the death of Uzzah in the first attempt in bringing the Ark into Jerusalem. He, and she said it's about a colossal loss for the king before his 30,000 man, army, and the witnessing nation, the stain against his leadership. People were probably questioning his leadership. Everything had been going so well for David. At that time, David was crushed and reacted in anger, and in his humiliation, he blamed God for the incident. He was afraid of the Lord, it says, and David, who experienced God's wonderful presence and protection, and who knew unusual intimacy over the years from the Lord his God, had come to terms with the fact that he had overstepped the line, that he had presumed upon the relationship by failing to observe the regulations laid down to safeguard and respect God's holiness. While Jesus taught us and his disciples to pray, and to address God as Abba, Daddy, Father. He also taught us to pray, Hallowed, holy is your name. We must be careful not to presume on God. In the 13th chapter, it said that David was afraid of the Lord that day. How can the ark of the God ever come to me? It was indeed the great question 
he knew he should have asked before. Earlier, in 1 Chronicles 15, we find that David went back and he did his homework. And he says to the people in verse 2, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and minister before him forever. And he says later, It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. And so we find that these priests and the Levites properly carried the ark on these poles on their shoulders And we find the precise ordering of that in Numbers chapter 4, where God gives explicit and specific instructions concerning how the ark was to be moved. The Levites from the Kohathite clan, a particular family of Levites, were the ones who were entrusted to care for the holy things in the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons, uh, the priests, were to go into the, the tent of meeting They were the only ones that could actually go into the tent of meeting, uh, particularly in the holy place, and they were to take the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and they were to take that curtain and put it over top of the Ark of the Covenant of God. And then over top of that curtain over the Ark was to be uh, some type of leather skins that then were placed over the Ark of the Covenant, And then over top of those leather skins was to be placed a blue cloth. And so no one was allowed to see the ark except the priest. It actually says that these Kohathite uh, Levites who carried the ark were not allowed to see it because if they saw it, they themselves would die. They could not touch it. They could not see it. We find actually... In, uh, in a passage in 1 Samuel 6 at the Philistines, when they had had the ark themselves, uh, and as, as Pastor Stan talked about, it was like hot potatoes from one place to the next because wherever the ark went, it was creating destruction among the Philistines. Uh, they were experiencing plagues and cancerous tumors. But anyhow, they, they sent the ark to an Israelite town called Beth Shemesh, but God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up from here? What a great question. And we find in Leviticus 10 when Aaron's sons decided to make unauthorized fire in their censers before God. God was very precise about the kind of special incense mix that was to be a holy mix only for God when they decided, well, this other kind of concoction or, or, uh, would be sufficient for God, and so they did, and God and the fire came down and consumed them, and Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord says, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy, In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Hebrews 12 tells us that God is a consuming fire. And we think about the holiness of God. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, When Scripture calls God holy, the word signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of all adoration and dread. 
It covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection and thus is an attribute of all his attributes pointing to the godness of God at every point. Every facet of God's nature and every aspect of his character may properly be spoken of as holy just because it is his. The core of the concept, however, is God's purity, which cannot tolerate any form of sin. Habakkuk says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And uh, in the Gospel of John, it talks about God is light. So there's no darkness in him at all. And so in the face of this, the psalmist echoes that line, which says in Psalm 15, Lord, who, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And then the psalmist says, He whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks truth from his heart, who has no slander on his tongue, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Uh, who can say they are blameless? Who? No. No, nobody. <laughs> we all like sheep have gone astray. There's none of us that are righteous. No, not one. We're all messed up in this. And so how do unholy rebels and sinners worship a holy God? And we see a hint here in this passage. And because God helped Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed bulls and seven rams. So they brought this ark into Jerusalem. And besides the honoring of God's word, we see that animals were sacrificed. Animals were sacrificed. And we see in the 16th chapter that burnt offerings and peace offerings were offered before God. Animals. Blood was spilt. Blood was shed. And Hebrews 9 tells us, in fact, the law requires that everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And there's actually five kinds of offerings of, of sacrifices that are given to us in Hebrews or in uh, Leviticus. Uh, five kinds, and two of them are mentioned here, burnt offerings, a bull or a ram or a sheep or goat, slaughtered before the Lord's altar, altar and blood of that, of that sacrifice was to be placed around all four sides of the altar, sprinkled on each side, the, and the whole animal was to be burnt completely, totally consumed as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. It was a voluntary act of worship for atonement for sin. But it was an expression that the whole being, the whole person, was devoted completely and surrendered completely to God. And then you see fellowship offerings were given. This was another male or female animal without defect. The person was to lay their hand on the head of the, of the animal, and the animal was to be slaughtered in in front of the tent of meeting. Again, blood was to be sprinkled around the sides of the altar. And this was to be an expression of thanksgiving to God. And, and people actually partook of the meat of that animal. God got the fat, and the people got the meat, and they also offered cakes and other uh, items uh, to fellowship. And this was a thanksgiving, a fellowship entering into communion with God, and the order was always that there would be sin offerings before there were fellowship offerings. And because God helped the Levites, it said, one scholar said this, the death of Uzzah had deeply impressed both David and the Levites, and it was doubted whether God 
would allow the ark to be moved anymore. They didn't know how is it that we can bring, have God's ark of his covenant into Jerusalem. Sacrificial animals were held ready, and when it appeared by the movement of the ark that there was no divine displeasure, uh, the Levites felt the help of God, and they felt cheered by God that this was the right thing. And so David was being extra careful, and he was ready for the sacrifices. Before, it appears that David had taken his instructions about how to move the ark from the Philistines themselves. You see, the Philistines were the last ones that actually moved the ark. And he probably said, well, how did you move it? Well, we moved it in a cart. We had to have a new cart. And so... And he said, well, I guess that's how the ark is moved. And he got a new card, and he was moving away. And, of course, that was the wrong way to carry the thing. The reality is there are many Philistine-style voices in our world that seek to inform us of how God should be worshipped, that God is not a person that you have to deal with directly who speaks authoritatively about how we need to approach him but he's a servant God uh, who will accommodate to whatever a person wants to believe. Isaiah 8 says this, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. You know, tomorrow is the celebration of, of uh, Reformation Day. Uh, October the 31st in 1517, Martin Luther uh, defiantly nailed a copy of his 95 Thesis about the corrupt practice of the church at the time for selling indulgences, that is, to lead people to believe that they could buy absolution or forgiveness of sins through money. And when he nailed these theses, those propositions for debate on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, he was propounding two central beliefs, that the Bible that the scriptures alone is God's highest authority, not the church, not the leaders of the church, or alleged authorities. And the word was so low, scripture, scripture alone. And the next thing that came with that was by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone. And uh, by the way, if you go um, just not a, a half a mile away here, uh, on Hill and 33rd Street, you'll see this huge statue. And that is Martin Luther, right there at Lake Montebello, on the corner of Hill and 33rd Street, holding a giant Bible. It's a big Bible. The Word of God was critical. And so here David has experienced uh, acceptable worship. He has now recognized that as an unholy rebel, a sinner, and a people in, in a midst of a nation of sinners, they had figured out how to approach a holy God. And it's one person said, Now we have David write it in his soul, and Jehovah, instead of being dreaded or being the source of displeasure, is the spring of gladness and thanksgiving. It was a holy joy, and there is no brighter, happier moment in David's history as the king than on that day. And so we see here this expression and really the call for us to be a people who give wholehearted worship to God. And so the ark was brought up with a shouting 
the sounds of the horns and trumpets and cymbals and made loud music on harps and lyres. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the holy city of David. And he was dancing and he was rejoicing. Uh, Psalm 138 says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart before the gods. I will sing your praise. You know, it's, it was pointed out by Pastor Stan last week that the very first thing that King David did in the, as he came into his reign in Jerusalem was not to have a public inaugural ceremony about his installation, but to have a great worship service. Now, just try to imagine that the Congress and the Senate, along with the president, the new president of the United States, would say, we're not having an inaugural ceremony to induct me into the presidency. We're not going to have all the gala and all the fairs and all the celebration. What we're going to have in this land is a great celebration of worship for the great king who reigns. <laughs> I mean, virtually, that's what David has done here as he comes into Jerusalem. He is this great king, but what David has done is that he's made himself a common person. He's taken off his crown. He's taken off his royal garments. He's put on this linen ephod, which was the common wear for the, for the priest. And he acknowledges that there is a great king in the land, and it's not me. <laughs> so David made worship of God the top priority of his administration. My brother Chuck, uh, he, uh, he works in a ministry called the Ministry of the State in Washington, D.C. His ministry is to uh, politicians and their families and their staff uh, for outreach and for discipleship. And he says frequently as he's traveling around, people ask him about... Uh, his perspective on how things are going in the nation's capital. <laughs> and, and he says, with my best poker face, I inform them that everything is going very well, that all the ills of the country and the world are being addressed and resolved, that there is nothing to worry about. And then this is normally, he said, followed by a look of unbelief and by a large smile as they realize that he's joking. But he says, as Christians, we already know that the world we live in needs to be fixed. It is for this reason that a Redeemer has come. That Jesus has come for those who were in need. And so we need not, as my brother said, to despair. We have a great king on the throne. We have a perfect, righteous king. One full of truth, one full of wisdom, who is reigning, who will reign. Whose kingdom has come and whose kingdom is coming and fruition and fulfillment. This is something to shout about, to sing about, to dance about. And so David is dancing. He is exhilarated in the nature of the God that he worships. Uh, and so the ark of God is coming into the city of God, the city of David. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from the window. And she saw David leaping and dancing. And, and 2 Samuel gives us a more detailed story about this. And it, she says she despised him in her heart. He returned home. Michael 
came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of, of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. You know. And so Michael actually reveals for us uh, the nature of so much religion. Michael wanted to keep God in her box. She didn't want worship to become the main thing, the central thing, the all-controlling, the all-engaging thing in her life. Like her father Saul, she wanted God to remain on the peripheral, to keep God in his place, to stay in control. And so we see in this Michael's own disordered heart, uh, worship was a formality, religion of traditions, a heartless ritual. And you are not to humble yourself before this God. You know, I, uh, I was asking Anne to give me her thoughts on this uh, particular incident, and she gave some great wisdom. And as we kind of reflect on our own personal lives as we think about this, and she said, I actually find uh, the account of Michael's despising David in her heart more convicting and alarming than Uzzah and the ark. Uh, maybe because I can more readily imagine myself reacting as Michael did. Uh, she says, um, of course, it might be simple conjugal jealousy. That is, is my man doing, uh, what is my man doing stripped to his skivvies in front of all these servant girls? But much more so, I think Michael isn't feeling David's worship. And in her feelings of exclusion, responds with resentment and disdain. Uh, like the elder brother, uh, he, she sees the celebration from the outside, isn't moved by it, and reacts judgmentally. Uh, her jealousy... Uh, she says, I think it's really easy, for example, for those of us who by temperament are less inclined toward in uninhibited forms of worship to have that kind of resentful response when we see others enjoying God in ways that are foreign to us. Uh, she says, and let's be honest, we tend to be more judgmental of our spouses than others. What's the answer? I think definitely not to try to work ourselves up into an artificial, psychological, produced spiritual experience, but rather to respect and be glad for other people's experience with God, even when it takes a different form from our own or when our hearts are going through a time of coldness and hardness. I think uh, Anne's given some great wisdom and reflections on, on this incident. Even for us, as we come into a place and we come from different traditions and different backgrounds, but whether we are super physical in our expressions uh, our call is to worship God with all of our hearts. And it's a movement of growth for many of us, to, 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 and we need to create a context of grace as we grow in that. By the way, the word, uh, when it talks about that he was leaping or dancing, uh, the word is in Hebrew is pizzazz. <laughs> pizzazz. You know, he's bringing pizzazz in the worship. You know, it was a full body movement. By the way, there's like three passages in the scriptures that tell us to be still before the Lord. To be still, know that I am God. And man, we need time for stillness and quietness, do we not? Well, there are 60 passages in the scriptures that command God's people with, a, with to shout and to blast and to forth and cry out and to dance and to lift up holy hands and God wants our full heart, body, mind and soul into worship but the final thing is the call to benediction 
It says, when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all of Israel, men and women, loaf of bread, portion of meat, cake of raisins. You know, we, in our culture, uh, there is the tendency to drift away from the holiness of God and the diminishment of sin. There's no sin, there's no guilt, there's no holy God. There's only God who lives on our level, God in our image, who is just like us and who indulges us and overlooks our sin and no sacrifice is needed. This would be called irreligion. But then there's a drift away from grace-filled worship where people rarely walk away feeling God's holy blessing. All they feel is their sin and their guilt and condemnation, that God is distant, and they feel burdened and weighed down, that they're never good enough, never acceptable enough, always having to do more, to perform more, and there's no rest and there's no freedom. Neither one of those, and that's the God of religion or irreligion, neither one of those is the God of the Scriptures, is the God of the Bible. The God of the Scriptures is a holy God, and he is a humble God. He is a holy God, and he is a humble God. He says in Isaiah 57, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And so God, who lives on high, has come down low. He has come down low. You know, and we end this, this section of worship ends with David giving a blessing to the people of God and sends them one way thanksgiving and encouragement and with God's blessing. You know, in Nehemiah, uh, the, uh, there was a passage where Ezra the priest was reading the scriptures, and the people hadn't heard the scriptures for a long time, and they were all standing there with their families and their children and the men and the women. And it says, this day is sacred to the Lord, uh, Ezra says. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord. You know, God doesn't want his people, after they have confessed their sin and acknowledged their sin, and are seeking repentance from their sin to still carry their sins. That you are to leave those burdens at the cross. And he wants you, in faith, to embrace his joy, his, his love, his acceptance for you, and how delighted he is to have you in his presence. And so... We find this blessing that is given. Uh, Brendan Manning, Manning um, he was a former priest, uh, but he says, I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he, that he will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus. 
who is an infinitely compassionate with my brokenness and at the same time an awesome, incomprehensible, unwieldy mystery. <laughs> I think it's a great picture. You know, God wants to bless his people in the context of the sacrifices, whether sins are forgiven or confession is made. God gives a blessing to his people. So we have a great king. We do have a great king. And the king that we have took off his royal robes. And he took off his crown. And he came down. And he decided that he loved rebel sinners so much, you and me so much, that he gave and became the sacrifice for our sins. And because of that, he has lifted us up on high. And in Zephaniah 3, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing, with shouting. You have a God who sings over you? You have a God who shouts over you? I believe you have a God who dances for you. You know, I, I had to believe that in the first wedding of Canaan that Jesus went to, that Jesus was dancing. I just I have to believe that in the nature of what I understand about Jewish wedding ceremonies, it was a blowout celebration. I mean, can you imagine Jesus being totally untethered and just dancing at a wedding celebration? But Jesus has a wedding for us, and I believe that he will dance, and we will dance with him. So... I don't have a loaf of bread or meat or a cake of raisins to give you at the end for a blessing. But what I do have is some dark chocolate Hershey Kisses. <laughs> and so, you know, and I got you dark chocolate because it's a better blessing for you. <laughs> okay. And there's two baskets of them on the way out. But, you know, God gives us concrete blessings, does he not? He blesses us with concrete things. And as we close, let's just ask that God, we would experience, we would walk out of here experiencing the smile and the grace and the love of our Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you give us the blessing and that you have blessed us in the heavenlies with the most precious thing, the blood of your Holy Son. Lord Jesus, help us to live in that. Uh, help us to acknowledge your holiness. Uh, Lord, for those that are here that maybe this is new stuff and they're hearing this maybe for the first time, I pray, God, you'd break through whatever is keeping them from confessing their sins and receiving you and just crying out, Lord, save me. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that live in the great worship of celebration that you have a, we have a great Savior and you love us with a great love. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.